0: in the last month of the series on the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7 and I want to say to you that we've been teaching this for a number of months and although every teaching service is a teaching service in its own right you don't have to come to everything uh, to get something if you come once there'll be something there for you it's contained in its own right Uh, But all of the sessions on the Sermon on the Mount are on our website, kt.org. You go to the media section, it gives you a list of different series. You see the Sermon on the Mount, and every one of the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount is there for you. So you can go through this teaching series on the Sermon on the Mount in your own time at home, and I would encourage you to do that if you haven't done that. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is... The greatest sermon that was ever preached. And it was preached by Jesus himself. I just want to uh, go back over a few things before we go to, the, to, to where we are today. And the Sermon on the Mount is basically a sermon on spirit-filled living. Spirit-filled living. You can't live the Sermon on the Mount unless you're filled with the spirit. Unless you're born again. The Sermon on the Mount is not, ju- is not just... Well, it's not just... It's not a group of moral laws... It is a way of life. It is walking with the Spirit. The Sermon on Mount, chapter 5, begins with the Beatitudes, and I'm going to read them. The Beatitudes, these Beatitudes is the characteristic of the Spirit-filled believer. And as we read through these beatitudes, the characteristics of a spirit-filled believer, when we get to the end, what happens after that is Jesus then says, right, I've given you the characteristics of what it is to be a spirit-filled believer, and now uh, I'm going to tell you what this spirit-filled believer would do in different situations, how the spirit-filled believer would deal with different situations in life, How the spirit-filled believer would walk with the Father and the attributes of a spirit-filled believer. So I'm going to read this right now, uh, Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled Of the disciple of Jesus, the spirit-filled believer. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is an explanation of these characteristics in different scenarios. I'm just going to quickly break down the Sermon on the Mount for you. If you've been here regularly, this will be a reminder to you. If you're here for the first time, this will be very helpful to you. So we have the Beatitudes. Straight after uh, the Beatitudes, we have the reaction... Of the world to such a believer that we've just described. And that's found in chapters 11, chapter 5, verse 11 to 12. It speaks about how people will persecute and react to this type of spirit-filled living. And then in verse 13 of chapter 5, we see the Christian's function in the world. This believer that we've just looked at throughout the Beatitudes and the characteristics of this believer will Have a reaction to the world. But what is this believer to do in the world? Well, we're to be salt and light. We're to be a light of the world, a city that's not hidden on a hill. No one puts light, lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Let your light shine. So that section talks about the spirit filled there. It's not to hide away, but the spirit filled believer is to shine in society. Then after that, one of the key verses is verse 17 that starts a big section in the Sermon on the Mount. And this, this verse 17 says, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets, but I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will be no, by no means enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying, you need to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Well, when he said that statement, the disciples must have looked at him and said, well, that's impossible. The disciples, they're the ministers. Uh, uh, Sorry, the disciples said, the Pharisees, they're the ministers. They're the holy ones. Pharisee means separated ones. They're the ones that teach us purity and holiness. They're the ones that follow all the laws to the letter. How can we have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees? well from verse uh, from verse seventeen to verse forty eight of, of chapter five, all of that talks about the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, and Jesus speaks about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees because Phariseeism, as we 've been looking at over this period, Phariseism is outward religion, outward religion it 's what you show to other people but True spirit-filled living is inward. So the Pharisees, for example, wouldn't commit adultery on the outside, but on the inside they were lusting in the heart. They didn't think it mattered. It was what was outward. The Pharisees wouldn't kill somebody, but on the inside they would kill their reputation. They would hate and do all manner of, of, of things like that. And so the Pharisees were external. The Pharisees were concerned about what people thought think about themselves. The Pharisees' goal was that you and me would think that they were holy, but they weren't living a life on the inside. What God is looking for is an internal heart righteousness. He's looking for the things and the way that you live your life when nobody sees you. When we uh, move into chapter 6, we see this even more emphasized. And I like to talk about chapter 6, and the theme is walking and trusting the Father. Having shown what the Pharisees are like, outward, not inward, he then begins to talk Jesus about, uh, don't do your giving before men, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Uh, Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And then verse 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray standing in the synagogues that they can be seen by all, outward seeing You can see my prayer, how holy you must think I am. You can see my giving, how holy you must think I am. And Jesus is saying, don't do it. Don't do it for others to see. Do it for the Lord. Do it. It's an internal righteousness, a praying that goes into the room and shuts the door. And so he speaks about prayer. Now, we are next week going to go into chapter 7. And if you've looked at the Revival Times, you'll know that the theme of this month is called the fear of the Lord. But because of um, last Sunday being Carnival, I'm one step out. And so I will be finishing um, chapter 6 with you today, and then we'll be moving on to the fear of, uh, of the Lord. Now, the chapter 6, as I've said, is about walking with the Father. True Christian discipleship is your relationship with your Father. And doesn't that make sense? Jesus was constantly thinking about his father. He says, I don't do anything unless my father tells me to do it. Uh, I, I see what the father is doing and I do it. I haven't come on my own authority. I could have. But Jesus says, I come on the authority of my father. Everything I do is for my father. It's not for you primarily, although you'll be blessed. Jesus was serving his father. Do you know that? We tend to think, oh Jesus, thank you for coming for us, thank you for saving us, thank you for teaching us, thank you for blessing us, thank you for healing us. Well, all that's good, but do you know what? His eyes were not primarily upon you. His eyes were on his father. He was a servant to his father. He was modeling to us how we should live. And so how should we live? Well, we should live like Jesus. He's made us a, son and a son on sons and daughters of the Father. So now we should do our living in the light and presence of the Father. Our prayer is for the Father. It's not for you. Our giving is for the Father. It's not for you. It's internal. It's a secret thing. God knows. God sees. The way we act to situations, the way we react to difficult people, we react not to the people, but we act To what the Father wants us. I've given this as an illustration. I'd like to give it again. I remember I had a very difficult meeting a number of months ago, and it could have gone very bad. Do you know what I'm saying? There could have been flesh on both sides. I'm being honest with you, and I was concerned about this meeting. I was concerned that it might flare up, that I might react to the person, or you know, it it was just you know, it was just a bad meeting waiting to happen. I'm being honest, and I was praying about it and over it, saying, "I don't want this to happen." And then as I was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, I thought, well, here's the key. I'm not going into that meeting with a difficult situation or what I consider to be perhaps a difficult person. The trouble is my focus is on the person. I'm going to go into that meeting and my focus is going to be on the Father. And I'm only going to speak what will be pleasing to my Father. I'm going to react, not to the person, but if the person does anything, I'm going to say, Father, I'm going to react to you and how you want me to react in this situation. Do you hear what I'm saying? Well, the the meeting, I must have prayed well over it because none of that needed to happen. It was a great meeting and God's blessing was on it. That's prayer for you. But the fact was when I went into that meeting, I was calm and ready. Because whatever happened, I was just going to speak and respond in the presence of my father. I'm going to say, is this pleasing to you, father? Uh, And that's how we should live. We should live like Jesus. Jesus spent his whole time saying, not my will, but yours, Father. He reacted according to what his Father wanted him to do. It's the key to Christian living. In fact, living in the light of your Father is actually being led by the Spirit. We talk about what is being led by the Spirit. It's the same thing. Being led by the Spirit is living in the presence of your Father. Consciously presence of, pres, conscious of the presence of the Father all the time. The way you speak, the way you act, what you do. And you know, our real spiritual life is what takes place in the secret place. You see, Pharisees, their spiritual life was what you saw. They would come to church, the Pharisee, and they'd switch themselves on. And then when they went from church and back into their home place, they'd switch themselves off. Isn't it true? You find out what somebody's like when you see them in the family home, unguarded. That's where you see them. So how you act in your marriage, that's who you are. And you know, you can, Pharisees will come and the husband and wife will look like the perfect couple. You know, they, they look like the couple that the Lord is modeling the church's bride on. They look like that. But you have no idea that once they get home, they're fighting like cats. You know what I'm saying? The family comes to church. Everybody's in their suits. The kids are there. Oh, you think, my God, that this family's going to be raptured. But the minute they they shut their door and they're off, that's who they are. You're a single person and you come to church and you act in a certain way. But when you get home to your room, the things you do, the things you watch, the things you say, the things you think... That's who you are. Now, I don't want you to be depressed about that. We're, we're all a work in progress. I'm just trying to help you say, how am I doing, Lord? Don't think about what you're like in your cell group. Don't think what you're like in public. Don't think what you're like here today. Think about yourself when no one's watching, where, where nobody knows. That's how spiritual you are, because actually somebody is watching. And somebody does know. Father. Father. So can I encourage you to work on your discipleship, work on the secret place where nobody sees, because that's where true spirituality is born. Begin to have your secret life line up with the Word of God. And you know what? The Father will be pleased. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And so now we're getting to the place today where we, where we are finding ourselves, if I can find my... In Matthew chapter 6, 25, and you picked a good day to come. Because we're looking about not worrying anymore. (laughs) So we're going to look at not worrying. But then next week, and I can't wait to get into chapter 7. Next week, that's when we're going to look at the fear of the Lord. Because in my opinion, the fear of the Lord is the missing message in the church today. The fear of the Lord. Thank God for grace Thank God for liberty. I believe in grace. I wrote a book, No More Law. Do you know what I'm saying? I know a little bit about grace by his grace. But what we need is the fear. Once you understand God's grace, you're now mature enough to go into the fear of the Lord, the awesome power and might of the Lord. Unless you're founded in grace... Once you start going into the deep things of the fear of the Lord, you'll start thinking you're not going to get saved, you'll start being introspective, your your relationship with God will get all rocky because you'll get scared that, you, that you're not going to heaven. But once you're established in grace, then you move on to the deep things. And remember, the Sermon on the Mount finishes in chapter 7. And a healthy, spirit-filled Christian knows they're a child of the Father. We're looking at this right now. Your Father, your Father, your Father, all through chapter 6. Jesus is establishing the Father's love and care for you, so that when you get to chapter 7, you're not going to freak out. So that next week, when I start preaching on the fear of the Lord, you won't be running out the door, scared stiff. But you'll be saying, wow, the fear of the Lord is clean. Do you know, I've been having a few experiences with the Lord. They're, they're not massive, powerful experiences. So I don't want to make it sound something it's not. But it has been giving me some glimpses of his sovereign power and his nature. And it's scary, but it's wonderfully scary. It's wonderfully scary. You know, the fear of the Lord is clean. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Now remember, not scared. I'm scared of my dad because he's abusive. You know, it's awful when a child is abused by their father. And that fear has got nothing to do with what we're going to talk about next week. The fear of the Lord is healthy. The fear of the Lord keeps you sober and alert. The fear of the Lord gives you a healthy respect of God. There's very little healthy respect of God in so-called grace circles today. You know, it's like... They call him daddy, and he is daddy, but he's also the sovereign creator of the universe. He pulls down nations. He sets up nations. He doesn't suffer fools gladly. You look at history today. You look at what's going on in history. God saw it all. God superintended it all. And any student of history, you're shaking your shoes when you see how God has lorded it over the history. But well, I tell you what, that's strong meat. Most people can't take that. They need, they, they need the milk of grace first. And that's fine. But that's where we're going. The fear of the Lord is going to set you straight, going to make you strong. It's, 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 going, it's the fear of the Lord that will bring revival. Hallelujah. But only when it's based on the foundation of grace. Grace. So, here we are. Chapter 6, verse 25. Read and receive. Therefore, Jesus says... Which of you, by worrying, can add one moment to your life? So why do you worry about the clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you this, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Isn't that wonderful? Now, just before we came to this passage, we did some teaching on money. Don't lay up treasures in heaven. So don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and thief, but lay up treasures in heaven. In other words... The choices that we make, what we do on earth, we can deposit by our good works and obedience to the Lord. We can deposit in our heavenly account and it'll never rust. What you do for the Lord is never forgotten. Do you know that? You might forget it. Others might forget it. But everything you do by faith unto the Lord, when you love one another, when you serve, everything that you do is credited to your account in heaven. It has nothing. To, it doesn't get you into heaven. That's grace of God. It's a free gift. But it builds up a reward to you that when you get to heaven, God will say, look at your account. Look at the things you did for me. Here's your reward. And that reward primarily will glorify the Lord. And so we see this on money. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus goes from money to worry. Well, that makes sense. A lot of our worries are often money focused, aren't they? When you look at the world today, especially Europe and the financial difficulties, people are worrying about money, where they're going to get it. They're worrying about their jobs, and we understand why they would do that. And then we get to this passage, and there's 10 verses that I read to you regarding worry. And you know, it's simply telling you this, God doesn't want you to worry. He doesn't want you to worry. Now, to some of you, you might think, oh, That's funny. That's funny because I would like not to worry, but I can't help it. I just, God doesn't want you to worry. Do you know what? My son doesn't worry when I'm around him because I look after him. I look after my son. I can honestly say that I don't think he's worried about anything that we're talking about here at all, all his life. Why? I feed him. I clothe him. I make sure he's got money in his pocket when he needs it. I watch over it. He's got other things to focus on. I don't want him to worry about those things. That's my job. I'm his father. I'm his provider. He doesn't go out and wonder if we'll have enough money to eat. He doesn't, he doesn't come home and wonder. He doesn't, it's not his job to worry. I don't want him to worry. I want him to focus on other things. I just, he just trusts me as the father provider. Yes? Well, this is what God is saying. He's saying, well, I'm your father. In other parts, Jesus says, you know what? If you had a child and that child asked you for an egg, would you give it a scorpion or a snake? You go, of course not. Well, if you, being evil compared to God, would never treat your child like that, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the kingdom of heaven? How much more will your Father look after you? There are 366 verses in the Bible that say, don't fear or worry. 366, that's one for every day of the year, including a leap year. You see, you can't even worry in a leap year. God makes sure that that wouldn't happen. And Jesus wants to set you free from worry because worry will entangle you and prevent you from living freedom in life. Worry and anxiety is a horrible thing. We all know because we've all worried, we've all been anxious. There's one thing I'm seeking to be free from, it's anxiety. Because anxiety is destructive. It keeps you awake at night, but it doesn't give you the solution to the problem in the morning. Worrying, worrying, going round in circles, your mind going like a wheel, going round and round and round, thinking, thinking, thinking. But none of it's wisdom. It's worry, And your mind worrying thinks of every negative thing that can happen, doesn't it? It doesn't think of every positive thing that can happen. I told you about that meeting I had a few months ago where I got the wisdom of the Lord to go into that meeting and just to speak and react in the presence of my father. But there was quite a bit of worry before I got to that point. And that worry and anxiety was negative. It wasn't helpful or positive. It just kept throwing into my mind all these types of scenarios that never happened. What a waste of time. No value at all. Anxiety and fear is absolutely no value at all to you at all, uh, in any way. And so here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, replace anxiety with trust. Transfer your anxiety to God. Sometimes when I've got a fit of anxiety or fear, what I do is I just stand there, and I just say, Lord, I'm giving you my anxiety, and I shut my eyes and I just imagine the anxiety, just like uh, uh, like smoke, just rising out of me, just rising. I just close my eyes and I just and I say, I'm just letting off some steam here, Lord, and I look and it's like steam, right? That's how I, in my mind, you might think it's weird, but it works for me. I just say, Lord, here you are. And I just stand there, and I just let, and it's like steam, the picture just rising off me. I'm just, I'm letting it go. I'm letting the fear go. I'm letting the anxiety go. I'm not worried. God's with me. In the end, he's in control. He's, he's, he's in control of everything that's taking place. From the minuscule microorganism that he's looking after, to the massive galaxies and universe. He is in control of every little thing all of the time. Not even a bird can fall without his permission. I think I told some of you about the time when, when God illustrated that not even a bird will fall to the ground dead without his permission. Did I tell you that? I'm going to tell you it again because it will bless you. Because we're talking about living f- free f- fear free. I was uh, driving down a motorway. And as I was driving, I just looked to the left. And I could see up in the sky down the motorway, just this bird flying. And it only took a moment. As I looked, I saw it in the distance and the bird just dropped, bang, down to the floor. And you'd think, oh, maybe it's one of those hawks going for a mouse. Well, it wasn't because as I got to the place where it dropped, I saw it by the motorway, dead, stone dead on the ground. And I looked at that and the Lord reminded me of that verse, not one bird drops to the ground without the permission of God. If, if I had taken one split second Delay, I would not have seen seen it happen. God ordered my my view. I just went, I looked up, and at the moment I looked, I saw it. Split second before or split second after, I'd have missed it. And I thought, look at God. God is so in control. Even the bad things that happen don't take him by surprise. They're part of his plan for our victory. Even our mistakes don't take him by surprise. Even when we fall and stumble badly, he's not surprised. We don't want to fall, we don't want to stumble, but if you have, he's not surprised. He knew it all along, and he's fixing on picking you back up and setting you forward again. It's all in his hand. It's called the providence, the providence of God. (laughs) Worry will neutralize faith. This is why in verse 30 he says, Will he not clothe you, O you of little faith? You of little faith. This is a question of trust Trust issues. I've said this a number of times during the Sermon on the Mount. That the Christian, of, Christian life is simply a question of trust. Trusting God. That he's real. That he's in control. That he's with you and that he's your father. If you're going to be a beatitude Christian, and you have a spirituality that is internal, a spirituality that is not about what people think about you, but driven by what God thinks about you, then God also wants you to enjoy his fatherhood and his care for you. He wants you to be free to serve him. Seek first the kingdom of God. Yeah, well, you can't seek first the kingdom of God if anxiety and fears are dominating your life. You can't do it. God wants fear-free, anxious-free Christians. And so you say, well, I'm going to find that very difficult. Get to know the Father. Get to know him. Read about him. Pray to him. Spend time worshipping him in his presence. Think about the good things that God has done in your life. We've all got testimonies. Just look back. I find that when I'm anxious or worried, sometimes what I do is I look back to see what the Lord has done in my life. I look back and think, well, you know, I've been in difficult situations before. Didn't think I'd get through them, but I did. And in fact, when I look back, all I see is the Lord. I see the Lord with me all the time. And I look at the difficult, the hardships, the problems. But when I look back, I just see the Lord. Superintending, looking after the bad stuff, the good stuff, my failures. I don't want to fail, I don't want to fail, but when I look back on the failures, you know what? I see the Lord. I see the Lord in my past failures, operating, working. He's totally in control. And so now what I'm facing, I'm going to face with the knowledge that God has never let me down. Sometimes I thought, I feared that He would, but when I look back, I realize that he didn't he was just growing and teaching me things he was saying do you trust me son sometimes when you wonder where God is he's just saying they're saying just waiting for a couple of moments to see if you trust me To see if you trust me it's like when you when a father teaches his child to swim I remember being taught and I remember teaching and you put your child in the water and then you say swim to me and you're just about that far away but what do you do you move back, you move back, and I remember when my dad was teaching me to swim, and he says, swim to me, and I thought, that's not far, he's just there, if it all goes wrong, I'll be able to grab him, but as I began to swim, he began to do something I wasn't expecting, as I swam to him, he began to step back, and I'm not happy, I'm going, dad, dad, stop dad, stop dad. Why? I'm, I'm getting worried. Why? Because I might drown. Oh, really? Is my dad going to let me drown? No, he was saying, come on, keep swimming. Keep, I'm here, keep swinging. swimming, keep swimming, keep swimming. And then when I was like, if I was panicking too much, his arms would pick me up. He said, now, shall we do that again? Don't worry, son, I'm here. And life is like swimming to your father and sometimes, you know, we would like the Father to be, to be holding us all the time in the pool. So he's holding us, you know, and we're swimming and we're swimming and he's holding us and he's holding. Well, you're never going to learn to swim that way, are you? It's the same in discipleship. So God sometimes just steps back a bit and says, come to me. We're going, where are you, Lord? I'm here. I've not gone anywhere. Come to me. I can't feel you anymore, Lord. The feelings have gone. Things are, this is difficult. I'm swimming and there's no one holding me. It's like I'm on my own. He's going, keep coming, keep coming. And if we faint, he steps in and picks us. But then he, then he waits for a bit until we get our confidence back and goes, come on then, swim to me. This is what this is teaching about our father in, in heaven, He is our pro- provider. He governs all things. And, and look at these illustrations. Do not worry about your life, what you will drink or your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Is not life more? Life is so much more. Life is God. Life is service. Life is walking in the things of God. Life is more than going to work, life is more than clothes, life is more than televisions, life is more... Life is God following the Lord, and we need to free ourselves from the mundane things of life that so many people fill their lives with. And then he gives this illustration about birds, and it's a very powerful illustration, don't take it just at face value. Now, God is promising to supply here our needs, not our greeds, all right? Now, I know God can prosper. I believe in the God of prosperity, who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servants. And God can bless and make rich, and I'm up for that, aren't you? But here, he's promising your needs, not your greeds. And I tell you what, you need very, very, very high levels of spirituality To handle riches. Very, very, very acute levels of spirituality to handle riches. How hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? He's not talking about a rich man to get saved. He's talking about how hard is it for a rich man to live for the kingdom of heaven because he doesn't need to. A rich man doesn't have to believe God for healing and get the best physicians he wants. A rich man doesn't have to believe God for clothing. He can have as many suits as he wants. A rich man doesn't have to believe God for accommodation. He's got enough mansions. A rich man has to be careful because it seems like the rich man doesn't need God at all. He's got everything that he needs through the power of his wealth. You have to be highly, highly, highly spiritual to be able to handle wealth. I don't know about you. I know this, this, you're probably going to say that you know, it's wrong. But I wonder if you do. Have you ever thought about winning the lottery? I have. I have thought. I haven't played it, but I've thought about it. I've thought about it. When you hear about someone with 10, 20 million pounds, I've thought about it. I remember thinking it through. I thought, oh, yes. What I could do with 20 million pounds. Yes. New car. Holiday hours. And I'm sorry, But then I'm thinking, all right, yeah, but I've got to do it, I've got to do it for the Lord. And then I start thinking through, and think, right, what's the tithe of 20 million pounds? What's the tithe of 20 million? Two million. So that's a lot of money, isn't it? Seriously, this is where I'm thinking, I get 20 million and I'm going to tithe. What's 10th twen- what's two- what's of 20 million? Two, mi- two million? What if the church doesn't use it right? What, what if I give two million and what if Colin get, buys an airplane for himself with it? I don't, I, I don't know if I trust Kensington Temple with 2 million. What might they might I'd, if I gave 2 million have to, I'd have to say where it went. And that would leave me only with 18 million. Which charities would I give it to? And who would I help? You know, well, and as soon as I started thinking through like that, do you know I thought, you know what? Keep it, Lord. I'm not ready for it. I'm not ready for it. I'm just thinking about it. And uh, all sorts of wrong motivations are surfacing. You know what I'm saying? So God isn't promising here to supply your greed. God doesn't want to spoil his children. And if he gave me 20 million, then he would spoil me. I hope that one day I'll be able to handle millions and millions and millions. I hope I will. But if he gave me 20, if he allowed me to have 20 million, I think I'd I'd, I'd spoil myself. But I'm working on it. I'm working on it. 20 minutes. No, God doesn't want to spoil Have you ever seen a spoiled child? Parent buys them a toy. Oh, thanks. Throws it away. No gratefulness. No thankfulness. No, God is, pro- is promising to supply your needs, not your greed. And, and he uses the illustration of the bird. Now, you know, birds are interesting because you say, well, look, God provides for the birds. That is true. Birds don't have very big brains. We call people bird brain because they've got small brains. Now, but birds, yes, they don't sow. They don't store food. But one thing about birds, they're always working. They're always working. They're always seeking. They're always looking. They're always working. So birds aren't lazy. So this isn't talking about someone being lazy and not seeking God for a job or, or not getting off their seats to do something for God and say, oh, well, the Lord said he'd provide. I'll just, you know, do nothing. This is talking about an active person, but it's talking about a bird doesn't worry. A bird doesn't wake up going, hope there's worms there today. Just goes out and looks for them, expects to see them and keeps looking till he finds it. So God wants us to be but like birds of the air that don't sow or reap, but God feeds them. They work, they do what they need to do. And God's provision is not always miraculous like a check that falls out of the sky. It can be like that. Often God's provision is the ability he's given you to get a job. It's important, especially if you're a high-paid person. If you're in one of the high-paid jobs, you need to know that God gave you that ability. And use it to the Lord. Don't ever think that just because you're high-paid, you did it. God gave you the gifts and you need to look after the low paid because he gave you those gifts they're not yours you got the grades you've got the business acumen you've got the ability you're in the high paid you're a surgeon or something that's cuz god gave you by his grace those gifts it's not you yes you had to put those things to work like you know like a bird you had to work but god gave you those gifts so god will give us abilities And he will provide for us as we serve him and use that which he's given us. We don't want to be the people that God gives talents and we just bury them. No, part of your gifting is to provide for yourself. And then verse 27 says, which of your worrying can add one cubit to his his stature? Now you can translate verse 27 two ways. You can translate it one cubit to your stature or one single hour to your life. It can be translated about your height. You can worry all you want, but you can't add anything to your height. Or it can be translated in the sense of time. In other words, you can't add one single hour to your life. And that should stop you from worrying. You know, I'm not a great fan of flying. Whenever I go in a plane... I'm sitting next to Nicola and Jake, and we, I always have this conversation with Jake. We always laugh now. It's a joke. You know when the stewardess comes out and they put on those um, life pre- preservers? Have you ever actually gone under the seat to see if it's there? You have. I've never actually done that. I thought to myself, what if it's not there? And what if I what? we're diving? We've lost the engine. I'm not... What could I be feeling under my life? And then I've got to put it on. And you've got to put the... Anyway, I'm getting fearful and anxious. But there they are. And we're thinking. We're thinking, you know, we're, we're flying over the Atlantic. Do you know, if we're going down, we, if we're going down where we're flying, we're, we're finished. I'll put a little orange thing on. I'm dead. Even if I get out alive, which we won't. How long is it going to take for a ship to get to us? We're in the middle of the Atlantic. And we laugh. I just said, you know what, Jake? They should should just stand up and say, look, there's these orange things. It's not going to save you. Because if we go down, we're finished. But I just want to encourage you. The Lord says you can't add a single hour to your life. When your time's up, your time's up. You're all looking at me weird. But it brings me great comfort. That's what I say to myself. Do you know what? I'm going to believe God for a long life. And everything, but you know what? My time is not set by the devil, sickness or anything. In the end, God knows the length of my days. And when my time's up, my time's up. Amen. Amen. You can fly fear free from this moment on. When your time's up, your time's up. Hallelujah. And the good thing is, but then I do have a debate with the Lord. I'm sitting in the plane going, well, Lord, when when my time's up, my time's up. But you've got a lot for me to do, haven't you? I mean, I haven't even begun my ministry yet, Lord. I mean, there's so much more that I do that it can't possibly be my time yet, could it, Lord? The lilies of the field, you, you can see what this is talking about. God clothes the God. This is talking about the providence of God the providence of God. The providence of God. You know, the word providence is the forgotten word. How many, I'm not going to ask you to do it, but how many could tell me what the word and teaching of providence means? Wave. Look at that, about two or three or four. What? Providence. What? What's it in it? Yeah. Providentia. Providenza. I was nearly there. We've got the Italian Fellowship in tonight. Remember, life is more than Gucci and pasta. That's just for you. Not much more, but it is. <laughs> uh, where was I till I was interrupted by the Italian Fellowship? Now I'm thinking about that Italian restaurant that Giuseppe's going to take me to. Hallelujah. Providence. Not many of us know what the word providence is. But in the 1800s, they used to name cities after it. They used to name, you know, there's a Providence Island in New York. Providence was one of, because providence is this. that tr- providence is God's care and oversight over every single thing that takes place in the earth. Amen. God's providence. He's totally in control of everything. He clothes the lilies. He feeds the bird. He literally does it. He's in control of everything, the length of your life. Everything is under his hand. It's totally in control. When things are disastrous, the providence of God can minister to you because you said, you know what? God's still in control. And of course, the greatest or one of the greatest examples of God's providence is Job, isn't it? The devil said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do... And God says, this far you can go, but you can't go any further. It's the providence of God. And all those things that Job Job suffered, it was in the providence of God. And And at the end, he was seven times better off than he was at the beginning. It was the providence of God. And what Job went through, he didn't know that millions and millions of people would read about his experience and learn about the goodness of God. He couldn't see it there. He couldn't understand the providence of God. God's prov- providential care of you. He is totally in control of you, my friend. Totally and utterly in control of everything. It's not down to you. It's down to him. Just trust him. Because the moment you think it's down to you, you're finished. Oh, but what if I mess up? What if I? No, what you do is in all, you, you should work. You, do your best, work your hardest, knowing that God's in control. So there's times now, it's wonderful, if I have to do something difficult, or a situation that I face is difficult, I, I try not to worry, don't always work, have to, sometimes you have to work through your worry with prayer, sometimes you don't will to worry, do you? It just comes on you, comes on you. Sometimes when my mind is whirling around and worried, you know, what? I just said, you know what, I can't stop this, so my mind can whirl, whir around all at once, I'm going to just let it whir, and I Relax. I remember that something was going round and round in my mind and I was trying to stop it in the name of Jesus Christ. But it wouldn't stop. And the more I tried to stop it, the more my mind was buzzing and buzzing and buzzing and buzzing. So I put my head in my pillow and I said, buzz away, Jesus is Lord. That's what I did. And I thought, I can't stop this. If my mind wants to buzz, it can buzz all it wants. My spirit is at rest. And so I've had my mind buzzing while my spirit's at rest. You know? And, And other times I thought, well, this is as much as I can do. If there's anything else to do, if there's any more wisdom, I don't have it. This is the best that I can do, the best that I can think, Lord. You'll have to do the rest. Oh, there's peace in that. There's peace in that. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. That doesn't mean you don't plan. It's an attitude. But as I bring this to a close, let me say, it really is about this. Is your father trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Do you trust him? Do you trust the father in the bad times and the good times? Do you trust him when it doesn't seem that when his, when his hand is hidden? When it doesn't look like he's involved? Do you trust him? Do you trust him? The greatest thing that you can do is trust your father when it doesn't look like he's there. That brings glory to him and brings peace to yourself. Well, I said that chapter 6 is all about walking with the Father. Isn't that wonderful? The Sermon on the Mount, we have the Beatitudes, we have the righteousness that's of the heart, we have that the Christian life is living in the light of your Father's gaze, that your Father's always watching. And so the way you act, the way you believe, the way you respond, the way you speak is increasingly done in the light that my father is watching. And that's what matters. Not you, not, not what you think, but what he thinks is going to govern me. Isn't that wonderful? And then you get to the place where he says, trust me, walk with me. Oh, how wonderful. Now we're ready to get into chapter 7, starting with judge not. That you be not judged. whoo Next week's going to be some fire. But not fire that brings scared fear. We've just been speaking about the Father, haven't we? No, this is, this is, this is going to be like, wow. He's my dad. But he is the creator and Lord of the universe. And I'm not going to mess around with him. I respect him too much. Amen. See you next week.